Good evening. I'm here to welcome you uh, to uh, this evening's lecture and book launch by uh, Professor Richard Samuels from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Um, I won't reappear on stage uh, to try and field questions from Professor Samuels, would allow him to do that afterwards, but uh, I'll be here um, to help with the uh, sale of books. Uh, for those of you who are interested in getting uh, autographed copies at a, a considerable discount um, uh, from Cornell University Press, uh, his paperback uh, editions of the book, uh, Securing Japan, uh, are on sale for eight, uh, eight pounds uh, cash or check. So I'm playing the role of the book salesman for this evening. I'd also like to uh, introduce Professor Samuels, uh, whose work I'm sure many of you know. Uh, he's the uh, Ford Professor of uh, politics at uh, Massachusetts Institute uh, for Technology, MIT, as well as the director of the Center for uh, International Studies. Um, you, uh, I think, should best understand his work, I think, in, in the light of something that it seems to me is sadly missing very often from the London School of Economics, which is an appreciation of the importance of the politics of Japan. I've been here for four years, and somehow Japan seems amazingly forgotten in terms of our understanding of international politics. And this is, seems to me utterly uh, unacceptable. And, and, uh, and no one has done more over the past decades to uh, shed light on Japan's domestic and international politics uh, than Dick Samuels. Uh, and his work is, is crucial um, and widely understood to be really the the center of all debates and understandings of Japanese politics. And his new book, it seems to me, is very timely in terms of recent changes in Japanese politics, uh, potential changes in American politics, uh, and other developments. Um, when we here at the LSE obsess so much about China, it seems it's well worth uh, turning our, our focus to Japan, at least occasionally, uh, and no one's better uh, qualified to do so and help us doing so uh, than Dick Samuels. So please join me in welcoming here for a very interesting lecture. Thanks very much. Is this picking? Is this picking up? Uh, okay, great. So I'll uh, I'll just uh, stand here. I'll, I'll uh, thank thank you, John, for that introduction. And uh, I realize that when I'm when I'm being described as someone who's made contributions for decades, it's time to cash in and uh, and leave the scene. That's very scary to me. My, my conceit is not that I've been around for decades. Uh, anyway, this, uh, the, the book I'm, I'm hoping you'll find of interest. Um, the cover was originally modeled after Shogun. I don't know if you remember the cover of Shogun, but it had a sword, and it said, you know, basically this, this drip, sword dripping with blood, and, uh, much like the Shogun cover by Clavel. And uh, this is not fiction. His was, of course, um, and his, the original design for this screamed out, buy this book or I will disembowel probably you and myself. This one simply says, buy this book and this soldier won't be quite so lonely. And uh, that's a, a plug for this. This is actually a woman. And it's exactly the same cover that's used by Sabina Fustruk on her new book, um, which is on gender and the military in Japan, which I commend to you. And I'll probably get to again in the course of my, my comments. What I want to do with you this evening in my comments is um, very quickly start with the past. I, nothing I do is, some of you who've read my work know, I always start with the past. Sometimes I, I dawdle in the past for, uh, for long, 
lengthy passages, but I do believe we can't understand where Japan is going uh, or where anyone is going uh, without understanding the past and how it's used, in particular how it's used. And, and uh, I, I want to sort of walk you through the past as I understand it in Japanese grand strategy. Uh, look at the present, uh, explain how we got here or how Japan got here, and then uh, sort of with you um, speculate a bit on where the future might be for Japan in international security affairs. And uh, perhaps take a position that some of you will argue with, um, perhaps some of you will embrace it either way. I hope to have a, a reasonably lively conversation. Uh, I'm, I know I won't be disappointed. So the past. Uh, this is actually not going to be on the exam, uh, but it is a full, it is a snapshot of an entire chapter uh, in the book. I, I simply want to make a couple of points uh, about this chart. Uh, I'm very proud of it uh, uh, because it, it is basically, it connects the dots across contemporary Japanese, the, the history of contemporary Japanese grand strategy. And by contemporary, I'm thinking about the period from the turn of the last century, uh, well, to the turn of the 20th century, yes, um, to the present. So you can see the timeline flows, the time flows from top to bottom uh, here, uh, beginning uh, well, grandly with the, with the, the Meiji Restoration and, and ri the rich nation strong army ideal uh, for Japan, um, which soon, around the time of the First World War, broke up into four groups, a discourse really that had four positions. I'm not going to go into the details here. I simply want to make a couple of points. First, that Japan's grand national strategy, uh, national security strategy, has had four moments well, three moments until now of, of basic consensus. There were always different strands. There was always great fighting. The, the portraits that have been painted of Japan as sort of this homogeneous, consensual, you know, wa-oriented, you know, the wa sometimes gets boing but is otherwise consensual. That stuff is nonsense, has long been nonsense. If it's being fed to you, uh, throw it back up at the, uh, at the feeder. Uh, the point is Japan has always been a nation of, uh, of folks, both elites and uh, masses, who have had really sharp disagreements about what is best for securing Japan's uh, uh, national interest. Different, uh, different values have been, have been uh, optimized at different times. The point here is that there were three moments. Uh, certainly the rich nation's strong army consensus, this forced march to industrialization and militarization. The military's uh, ascendance uh, under what I'm calling here Konoi's new order, and the, uh, the cheap ride on US uh, security guarantees. The, it's not a free ride, but it's a cheap ride. It's close to a free ride. It has the same, some of the same dynamics, some of the same moral hazards and so forth, uh, which I call democratic Japan's cheap ride, which is often called the Yoshida Doctrine. I, I prefer to refer to it in slightly less decorous terms, but there it is. Um, throughout all of this, and connected across all of this, have been fairly consistent views about whether Japan should be a big nation or a strong, strong, small nation, whether Japan should be a trading nation or a powerful military nation, whether Japan should be a great power or uh, a middle power and so forth. And that's the kind of debate we see now blossoming again in Japan today. That's where I'm going to go with this, but I just wanted to show you how it connects to the past. We, we can, if you wish, uh, come back to it. Um, there is one guy um, uh, among many uh, who uh, I just want to mention again. I'm flicking at him. 
I'm not doing him justice, but it's Yamagata Aritomo, who, who built the Meiji military, who built the emperor's military, who made it possible through his manipulations with other uh, elites in the late 19th, early 20th century, in his particular case, to make sure that there would be military at the table of all cabinet, all cabinet meetings, and that the military would have a veto of, of Japanese national security, actually all national policy. It's very important, and I mention him because at the end of the Second World War, uh, there, you know, Japan came out of the other end of a devastating war, devastating for its neighbors, but of course, very devastating for itself. It came out at the other end with four groups of folks uh, who, were, who were vying for uh, power, who were vying for control of the national agenda. Um, they were uh, self-described pacifist folks who, mostly on the left, who wished Japan to be unarmed and neutral and rejected the idea of an alliance with the United States. Neo-militarists who were, uh, saw the alliance with the United States as a convenience, but basically as a convenient way back to a, 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 re, a, re, a, you know, a revived military who said, well, you know, we got it, we got it a little bit wrong, we'll get it right the second time. And these guys uh, had great friends among the American military occupiers, and it was a it, it, they never got much traction, fortunately, but, but we don't want to cast a blind eye uh, to their existence nor to their friendship with the American military in Japan, the American military government, SCAP, in Japan. And then two groups of conservatives, uh, who we'll come back to over and over again, which is the purpose, of, really the purpose of this slide. The first, what I'm calling the revisionists, the revisionists is just playing off of the notion of revising the Constitution, Article 9 of the Constitution, which says that Japan forever renounces the use of force of, as a means of settling international disputes, and therefore will not maintain land, sea, or air forces. I mean, that is basically a paraphrase, maybe even a direct quote from the Constitution, Article 9. There are folks who were never really comfortable with that, uh, who were trying from the very beginning to undo that because they thought that this would be crippling uh, to Japan. It would prevent Japan from being uh, all that it can be, as we say in American jargon. Uh, and then uh, the pragmatists, actually, who, who held sway uh, for most of the first 40 years of the, uh, most of it, not all of it, but most of the first 40 years under the Yoshida doctrine. They were Yoshida and his acolytes and his successors. Very pragmatic, very conservative, but very pragmatic. And they, they, were, they were the ones who said, well, you know, uh, for Japan to become a great nation again, for Japan to, to step again upon the world stage as an equal of the great powers, um, what it needed first to do was to rebuild and would be economics first. And they made a tacit deal with the pacifists that they would not support revision of Article 9. They were opposed to the pacifists in the, in the ballot box. They were with the revisionists within the Liberal Democratic Party after 1955. But their, the real fight within Japan for most of the Cold War was between these two brands of conservatives. Uh, I'm telling you this for a reason. Um, what, what won and what prevailed uh, under their, uh, under basically the pacifists' wing for the most of this period was, as I say, a cheap riding realism, very realism, very, very realistic. This was not, ideal, it's ideological in, 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 a, in a profound sense, I suppose, but this was, this was a calculated strategy uh, to, uh, to maximize benefits for Japan, uh, and it had several pieces. Um, it was a way to, well, let me walk through them. The, the largest and most important piece of this was that the ghost, the ghost of Yamagata Aritomo was always hovering somewhere. That's why I showed you his photo to begin with. What I mean by the ghost of Yamagata is that there was this fear, deep, deep 
within the Japanese discourse uh, that any discussion of the military, any discussion of national security, any discussion of, of the basis, you know, these discussions were always overlaid by a fear that Japan would once again become a militarist state. The Japanese, there's a large slice in the Japanese discourse comprising folks who just don't believe Japan can be trusted with having a military. And that that's consistent with Article 9 and that therefore you don't change Article 9, you don't do anything to make it uh, possible for Yamagata and his ilk to return. So the, the specter of Yamagata Aritomo is very important. And even to this day, as one talks about defense budgets and one talks about doing things with the Americans that are unsavory, um, many of the things the Americans do are unsavory, of course, and so doing it with the Americans because you have to maintain the alliance, again, is all, uh, you'll see conversations, editorials, uh, unrolled, sort of the dust is blown off and re reissued, all about being careful not to reinvite a Yamagata-like leadership back in. And so this had a number of pieces in it. This is basically the Yoshida doctrine. Non-possession, you know, non, non non-manufacture, non-introduction of nuclear weapons, the three non-nuclear principles, limited defense budgets, uh, less than 1% of GDP would be spent on defense, uh, a ban on defense exports, which was very frustrating to heavy industries. I, I did a book a few years ago on, uh, called Rich Nation, Strong Army, which looks at uh, the, the, uh, the defense industry of Japan and how frustrated, how angry they got that they couldn't nudge the Japanese leadership off of this, this limitation. They wanted to get in the business. They still do. Actually, they are, and I'll get to this in a moment. Um, the ban on the military use of space, which was, none of these are laws. All of these were sort of norms, but more than norms. They were cabinet orders. Uh, they were public policies proclaimed by the Yoshidaites uh, who followed and there would be no defense ministry. There would only be a defense agency, and that defense agency would be colonized by senior bureaucrats from other agencies to keep the Yoshidaites, keep the people in uniform down. And this is very important. Keep the uniforms away from politics. This is, the, this is a form of civilian control that was quite effective. And so the result was this kind of military. This is from the JDA, the Japan Defense Agencies, Again, it was a defense agency, not a ministry. Uh, from their white paper, that Japan would have a reliable and warm-hearted military. Well, this is very reassuring, I'm sure, to Japan's neighbors. This was at least as reassuring. It would also not only be reliable, not only be warm-hearted, but it would be damn cute. And so Prince Pickles, um, this, is, this is the mascot. Uh, and again, Sabrina Fustruck has done a marvelous job with this. The point is, is to try to... to um, uh, to make the, Japan, the contemporary Japanese military look nothing like the imperial military, not as ferocious, not as aggressive, not as, not as political, just bloody cute. And so you get, uh, you get this sort of thing, and my favorite, of course, is the one with Donald O'Connor and Gene Kelly dancing on the deck of a, of a helicopter carrier. This is on the web, uh, and you can actually see them in motion. Uh, doing this. Um, this, is a, a, this is a recruiting um, advertisement for the Maritime Self-Defense Forces. And they sing about seamanship for love and seamanship for peace. And, you know, I'm, I'm being cute about this, but this is a very serious thing. This is an effort to redefine the image of a, of a fundamental institution in industrial democracy. And it's a concerted, protracted, sustained effort that has actually succeeded quite well, in part because 
Article 9 has not been changed yet and, uh, or reinterpreted. So that's what you, you know, this was the consequence of, of, of a past, a reaction to the past, a set of institutions, a set of norms, a set of policies that were designed to reassure not only Japan's neighbors, the Chinese in particular and the Koreans, uh, not that they did a terrific job of reassuring either one, but reassuring Japan's public, the pacifist public that had suffered itself so much uh, from the excesses of a militarist past. So there's a present. Now there's a present that's quite different from the Yoshida doctrine actually that I showed you uh, because it's a present in which Japan actually does have land, sea, and air forces. It has not only land, sea, and air forces, but considerable land, sea, and air forces. Land, sea, and air forces that reach out, that have the capability of reaching out and touching in very destructive ways, in fact. Now, there are limits. Japan does not have uh, 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 missiles. It certainly doesn't have yet, at least it, well, we'll talk about nuclear weapons. Um, there's some ambiguity in the minds of some, but uh, I've seen no smoking pistols uh, on the nuclear front. But there are, no, there are no cruise missiles. But they do have capabilities today, I'm listing a few here, that were declared unconstitutional as recently as 10 years ago. So the interpreters of the constitutions, those, in, it's called the Naikaku Hosei Kyoku, the, the cabinet legislation bureau, the people who are interpreting the constitution, it's not the, it's not the Supreme Court of Japan that does this. These are bureaucrats, nobody elected, nobody, these are just bureaucrats who say what can and can't be um, legal for Japan to have, and when a Japanese prime minister says he wants it, mm, he's basically gotten it. Uh, a digression. In 1957, 1958, uh, a, a very influential Japanese prime minister who is not a pragmatist, uh, Kishinobusuke, who was the guy who ran Manchuria for the Ministry of Commerce and Industry and who spent three years in Sugamo prisoner, prison as an unindicted war criminal, who long, had long since uh, bathed himself in the, in the waters of American democracy, became America's true friend, uh, was elected with, uh, with what we believe to be covert support from the Americans. Those, by the way, those, uh, those archives have not been opened yet. Some of you, uh, have, there's a great dissertation to be written should you get access to those archives. In any event, Kishi um, was unhappy uh, with, with the possibility that Japan might not be able to get a nuclear weapon, and so he instructed the Cabinet Legislation Bureau to declare that the possession of nuclear weapons was not unconstitutional. The possession of defensive nuclear weapons, whatever that means. The point is that politicians determined, and in case mostly revisionist politicians, determined to make changes have been able to make changes, not in the Constitution, but in the interpretation of the Constitution, by leaning hard on bureaucrats, um, which I guess is what you want if you want civilian control, I, I suppose. And anyway, let's talk about that. But the point is, there's been an accretion over time. And I'll show you in the next slide, I'll show you the salami slices that have been taken off of this, uh, this Yoshida doctrine that have given Japan capabilities that were formerly um, declared unconstitutional. Aerial refueling is a good one. The Japanese military and defense producers, defense contractors tried for years to sort of extend Japan's capabilities through uh, the acquisition of aerial refueling capabilities, you know, air tankers. Um, they couldn't have it, they couldn't have it, they couldn't have it, now they've got it. Assault ships with hardened decks. Now why do you need a hardened deck if it's a helicopter carrier? Well, maybe someday, the the suspicion is you'll have, you'll have a vertical takeoff and landing 
uh, planes just like, you know, well, just like the British uh, Navy has. The Americans um, uh, haven't sold any of these to the Japanese. The Japanese haven't built any of these things, but they do have the capability to transport them should they wish to. These assault ships actually look like carriers. Um, um, remote island defense is what they practice. This is, this is, an this is not the Yoshida doctrine of senchuboe, senchuboe the, the defensive defense, the hedgehog strategy, which was, I should have had that on the, on the list. The, the, the Yoshida doctrine was we will not be able to reach out and touch anyone, but if anyone tries to, to fool with us, we can defend ourselves. We, we, we put up our, like a porcupine or a hedgehog, we put up our bristles and we're very effective defenders of our homeland. Okay? Now they're actually reaching out and touching and practicing remote island defense and establishing the Coast Guard, the Japan Coast Guard as a new military power. Uh, I will show you a slide about this in a moment, uh, a very important slide actually, and, but if you're interested in the longer argument from which it's derived, I did a piece in the journal International Security recently on Japan's new military power using the coast, talking about the Coast Guard as the, uh, the paradigm. And they've had doctrinal shifts over time, participation in peacekeeping operations under the UN auspices, and participation, enthusiastic participation in what is thought by many to be quite illegal, which is the proliferation security initiative, the, the willingness of the United States, this was John Bolton's initiative, to go out and uh, declare uh, the right to board and uh, you know, to, to in, uh, interdict uh, any ship on the high seas that it, it suspected of transporting weapons of mass destruction. The Japanese signed on, other countries did as well, uh, some declined. Uh, and of course, now they they're, they're, have been engaged in uh, what are called by some semi-permanent patrols to the Persian Gulf. I say no more semi than permanent because in the meantime, the upper house of the Japanese diet has, been, has come to be controlled by the opposition. And that matters for reasons I will discuss. So what happened was Japan went from Senshuboe, homeland, exclusively defensive defense, homeland defense, to something a little bit different, which was a regional security role. And the first, the first bullet point here is quite important. Arata na senryoku in Japanese. Arata na senryoku. This is in quotes. And you'll notice the exclamation point is inside the quote. And the exclamation point is inside the quote because this is the way it was written in the Japan Coast Guard white paper of 2006. And when I saw it, I fell out of my chair. So I, I dusted myself off. I, I, I got back up on my hind legs. And I hide myself off to the... Uh, to the Japan Coast Guard Commandant and got an appointment to see the gentleman and said in my best Japanese, what's up with that? And the reason I asked what's up with that is because some of you will recognize the word senryoku. Senryoku is what's in the second paragraph of Article 9 of the Constitution that Japan cannot have. It's forbidden. It's forbidden. And yet, they were using the same word to describe what they had, was, which was new, aratana, senryoku. They'd have new military power, and it would be in the hands of a Coast Guard. Now, a Coast Guard is a constabulary force. It's, it's designed to go after you know, bandits and smugglers and, 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 and people like that, bad guys, not to fight the militaries of other nations, not to fight other people in uniform, okay? Um, so they, this is the way it was explained to me. Actually, what he said to me, he said to me, I don't know how many of you understand Japanese. He looked at me and he said, Sensei, He says, You're a little too clever. I said, What do you mean I'm too clever? He says, How about the Red Sox? How are they doing this year? And he wanted to change this. I said, No, let's talk about Senryoku. He said, No, let's talk about the Red Sox. I didn't, 
I didn't get a good quote from him other than the Kashikoi Sugiru uh, The idea was to not, is not, to, not to engage, and actually this doesn't appear in the 2007 or 2008 uh, white papers, but it's an important statement because this is an alternative to a Yoshida. It's the beginning, it's an accretion of new capabilities and new forms of participation in regional security. What does it include? Modernization of the Coast Guard, very rapid growth. The, the Japanese defense budget, the formal defense budget, has been flat and kept under 1% of GDP <laughs> since the early 1980s. But the, the budget of the Japan Coast Guard has gone up like this in the interim. Uh, it's, got, it's where law enforcement, as I said, meets national security. It's sort of a fourth military branch. I say it's not a second navy because it doesn't have the kinds of, of look down and look up capabilities that navies have, you know, hunting for subs and, and doing, you know, air, uh, air, clearing, uh, air clearing radars. But they have had a very relaxed set of rules of engagement. This is very, very relevant. One of the things um, that's most central to the Article 9 of the Constitution is that Japan would not, um, would not uh, uh, use force as a means of settling international disputes. That's the, the Article 9, right? Well, these guys were told, mm, you can sort of, you, you can use force at your judgment. And that law was changed in October of 2001 at the, the very moment that Japan passed the patrol to the Indian Ocean law that we were all focused on. They changed the Coast Guard law and one month later, the, for the first time since 1940s, Japanese uniformed officials fired guns and sunk a foreign ship. And that was a North Korean ship, the quote-unquote mystery ship, Pushinsen. I don't know how many of you remembered or even paid attention to it, but it was historic. Because there they were using force against the, and actually it, it, it sank in Chinese, in Chinese waters and we, we'll get into that. Um, the interesting and actually counterintuitive thing behind all of this is that this has been welcomed, not just at home, by Japanese uh, across the board, in part because the, 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 the Coast Guard sits inside the old transportation ministry and until this last cabinet reshuffle, the last four or five ministers have been from the Komeito, which is a, a coalition party. So there's a way to keep the coalition in. It's a way to reassure the Japanese public, you know, there's nothing, nothing bad afoot, but it's been welcomed by the Chinese, it's been welcomed by the Russians, it's been welcomed by the South Koreans, and certainly by the Americans. This is this, this bulking up of the Japan Coast Guard. There is a thing called the Northern Pacific Coast Guard Forum, which is actually an extraordinary model of quasi-military cooperation in Northeast Asia. In fact, the only model we have, we can talk more about that. But the Coast Guard has been used for overseas development assistance. JICA has used Coast Guard equipment. Now, this is a country that can't right, export arms. Well, they've been exporting Coast Guard ships to Malaysia, to the Philippines, to Indonesia, through JICA, those of you who know the Japan uh, uh, aid agency. Um, so here we are. Well, here we are. Um, this is Mr. Abe. He's, a, he's two prime ministers ago. Um, and this is uh, taken at a very important time, actually, in, in, in the context of this discussion. It was January of 2007 when the Japan Defense Agency became the Ministry of Defense. And so here he is reviewing the troops um, of the new ministry, uh, the troops within the Japanese self-defense forces within the <coughs> Ministry of Defense. So I've just described some changes. How? How did it all happen? 
Well, you know, in graduate school, I, I remember a lecture from Carl Deutsch. I don't know if y'all read, y'all read Carl Deutsch? Anyone read Carl Deutsch here? Uh, as students, I'm asking the students. No, well, you should go back and have a look. I mean, Carl Deutsch, he was a great man. And Carl Deutsch, you know, among the many memorable things he said, got up on the podium and his head, I won't even begin to, I would try to, uh, to, uh, to attach myself to his accent, but he had this wonderful way about him and very tweety and, and uh, said, you know, if there was ever a single reason for any political event, I assure you, it didn't happen. And so here I am telling you the same thing, which is there's lots of reasons, and I'm not going to try to uh, put beta coefficients in front of each. Let me just suggest there's domestic reasons and international reasons and walk through a few. First, that those pragmatists who had dominated, the Yoshidaites who had dominated Japanese political discourse, really got, they were, they were elbowed out by the heirs of Kishinobusuke. You know, this guy here is the grandson of Kishinobusuke. Actually, the current prime minister is the grandson of Yoshida, so never mind, but there we are. Um, the LDP pragmatists were, were marginalized. They were, they were shunted aside by, well, Mr. Koizumi in particular, as the revisionists with Koizumi, with Mori, uh, with, uh, with uh, uh, Abe, certainly, uh, began to consolidate their power. These were uh, what, what I call normal nationalists, but the term normal nation Futsunokuni comes from uh, actually a guy in the opposition, Ozawa Ichiro, uh, who said Japan should be a normal nation. We should be able to say no to the United States. Uh, we should be able to use force if, if our interests are threatened. We should be just like uh, Britain. We should be particularly Britain, but we should also be like, you know, uh, France or Italy or Germany and so forth. These guys, um, with this doctrine in mind, um, uh, consolidated power. And they did it in a vacuum. There was no opposition at the time, really, to speak of. There was Ozawa and his, his uh, uh, first liberal party, Jiuto, and then the Ninchito, uh, his current party. But they, they, didn't, they didn't get in the way. The left had long since gone. The left committed suicide. The socialists committed suicide. And the communists became irrelevant long, long ago uh, in ways that were, are actually very sad for the health of Japanese democracy, in my view. The fight was entirely among the conservatives. Um, the bureaucracy was no longer the, the dominant force that it was said to have been. And a public support for the, the self-defense forces was growing. And it is today higher than it's been um, ever, in part because of very careful use of the self-defense force, about which in a moment. Of course, it's also in the context of a new world order, one in which uh, everything has changed, no balance of power, uh, globally, only the United States basically running around and doing what it wished to do um, uh, in ways that, that forced Japan's hand, repeatedly forced Japan's hand. Are you with us? You're against us. Uh, you know, and and, and uh, the Japanese came, well, I'm talking to a group in Britain, you understand these things, um, how governments came to, to sit with and beside the feet of the United States as it was exploring these options for the, hege for the new hegemony. Uh, a new balance of power regionally, certainly, that is the rise of China. That's, that's sort of nice, nice way to, uh, two different ways to say the same thing, I should say. Um, and over time, I won't get into the details of this uh, because I'm already uh, um, talking too long, but the sending minesweepers to the Persian Gulf after the first Gulf War, signing into law after much debate among these groups that I described before, uh, the right to do UN peacekeeping, a shift, as I've said, from homeland to regional security in, in, in 1996 when it was discovered that the U.S.-Japan alliance had no core. 
This was in the context of the first Korean, the first crisis, nuclear crisis on the Korean Peninsula. Uh, the alliance managers looked at it and said, so, you know, we have this crisis and, you know, we actually, we Americans, we actually may be doing strikes and so here's what you're going to do. And the Japanese said, say what? Um, where does it say we have to do those things? You know, there was nothing, there was no there there. And, the, and, and when it was discovered there was no there there, there was a lot of very rapid efforts. There were a lot of very, very rapid efforts made to try to put some there there into this, uh, into this alliance. And that was the redefinition from home, strictly homeland security to regional security, which is um, in the areas surrounding Japan, which the Japanese quickly went to Beijing to reassure their Chinese friends was not a geographical concept. Um, I'll leave you to interpret that. And of course, after 9-11, um, the, basically uh, the violation of the Constitution, the de facto collective self-defense. The current uh, interpretation of the Constitution says Japan has the right under international law but doesn't have the legal ability under its Constitution to engage in collective self-defense with an ally. That is, that means that if an American ship is attacked on the high seas, uh, it cannot defend the American ship, even if it has the way, the means to do so. This would not go well with the Americans. The Japanese understand that. And so um, they, they uh, have been working for years to try to get a reinterpretation. It hasn't really happened. In the meantime, de facto, by sending um, their tankers with destroyers out to Diego Garcia, fueling American and British warplanes for sorties in Afghanistan during occupation and during freedom, they've made it happen. They have violated the Constitution, and I think the Japanese all understand this. It's a bit of a kabuki, and there's an effort to sort of, sort of make it right, put it right, make it, make it consistent, and it's, it's, a difficult, it's a difficult circle to square. And by 2004, there are, there are Japanese boots on the ground in Iraq. The Japanese claimed it was a non-combat zone because that's you know, important. You can't send troops into combat under the current interpretations of the Japanese Constitution. So they sent them to this place called Samawa, which they said was a non-combat zone. And when Mr. Koizumi was asked, well, how can you know it's a non-combat zone? And he said, well, because that's where our troops are. Again, I leave it to you. I mean, there were the lexical somersaults that Japanese um, uh, politicians and, and, and bureaucrats have had have been going through is really very difficult. And I'm not trying to diminish it. It's, it's very difficult for Japan to be quote unquote normal and be consistent with the strict interpretations of the Japanese constitution uh, to this point. Um, by, um, by 2004, they relaxed the arms export ban. Uh, they've exe they exempted BMD cooperation with the United States from, from, from these things. Um, I've talked about the creative use of the Coast Guard and so forth. Uh, let me skip over these. There, there are specific catalysts, the, the end of the Cold War certainly, the humiliation of, of what they call checkbook diplomacy, that is the fact that, in, that, that after the first Gulf War in 1991, uh, the coalition that was put together by George Herbert Walker Bush, paired Bush pair, uh, Bush the first, uh, he um, uh, relied upon the Japanese, a Japanese check of $13 billion. They wrote a check for $13 billion. Japan was the only country in the world to actually tax its citizens to pay for the first Gulf War. And when the thanks went out from the Kuwaitis, bless them, uh, Japan was left out. And so Japanese who would like to see Japan be normal have never failed to use this to talk about the humiliation of checkbook diplomacy, understanding that unless we put our men and women in harm's way, unless we 
You do more than, than transfer loot, but, actu but actually transfer bodies um, and put, put uh, our national treasure, beyond our national treasure, our people, we will, have, um, we will never achieve uh, the status, the equal, the equal status of the other great powers. And so that was a catalyst. And um, a lot of people blame all this on the United States. This is a, a lot of fun. This, this is Rich Armitage, Richard Armitage, who uh, at this moment, uh, he's cracking the whip for the lion, uh, Mr. Koizumi, as you might recognize him. Uh, the lion is the Jietai, the, the self-defense forces, and he's jumping over the, the, uh, the wall of Article 9. And he's saying, get over the wall. He says, show the flag, put your boots on the ground, get over the fence. And um, the question mark at the end of this is, is, was it really force majeure, or was it simply that is the Americans forcing the Japanese to sort of get in line? Or was it the Japanese sort of, in particular Mr. Koizumi, saying, you know, if we don't stand side by side, shoulder to shoulder, not quite wingtip to wingtip with the Americans, uh, we're going to suffer for it. I think it's the latter, but there it is. Then there's the, uh, the, the catalyst from central casting. This one is quite, quite a lot of fun. The mother of all catalysts, probably, um, at least notionally, uh, rhetorically, uh, is uh, Kim Jong-il. Uh, this is, this is the, um, starting with the 1993-4 crisis, which, you know, uh, that crisis led to the reinterpretation, as I've already described, of the alliance and really of Japan's security doctrine. In 1998, of course, he sent um, his, uh, his hardware, he spilled his, he tossed his hardware over the archipelago, and the result within a week was a repeal of the, uh, of the long, the long ban, the long held ban on the non-military use of space. You know, Mitsubishi Electric had had a program set to go, and it was, it was the diet passed it, and, and Japan put up a spy satellite within a year or two. Um, the Coast Guard law revision I've already described, again, that was a North Korean ship, uh, again, used by those who would have Japan become more muscular uh, as evidence that Japan needed to be more muscular. North Korea, I mean, he's been a serial miscalculator all along the way with the Japanese because he's fed, if you're, if you're on the right in Japan, if you want Japan to be more muscular, if you want Japan to be stronger, you can't hope for a better uh, foil uh, than Kim Jong-il. I was at a conference recently with a retired Japanese ambassador, and he was asked, you know, why are you participating in ballistic missile defense with the Americans? You know, this is a violation of your constitution, blah, blah, blah. And he said, well, you know, the problem is the North Koreans. And at the end of it, I, I, I asked him, okay, there are two possibilities, Mr. Ambassador. I did this off, off mic, but there are two possibilities. The ch before the North Korea was either Chosen, which is not a nice way to describe uh, Korea, in Japanese, although Chosen is North Korea, or it was China. And he said, you heard that, right? And of course we heard it. Everyone heard it. And the point is that it is China that folks are worried about, but North Korea is just so much more convenient because it's so, more, so much more transparently the villain. And so um, it's, it's easier for the Japanese who want to be more muscular to get their, their tasks adopted. Of course you don't forget China. Uh, we, we can talk about the security dilemma with the Chinese. We really don't know the full dimensions of it. I will say it's not quite as bad a security dilemma as we might imagine. That is an arms race. A security dilemma, you know, IR 101, yes, where you, know, you do something that's in your defense, you think in your defense, the, your adversary or potential adversary interprets it as, as aggressive and so does something to counter it. You interpret that as aggressive and so you're in this uh, 
security dilemma. Um, it's a long-held theorem in international uh, security studies. Um, it's not quite out of control uh, in, East, in East and Northeast Asia because the Japanese have maintained that, that level of uh, formal defense uh, cap, but there it is. Uh, and there are lots of triggers, uh, potential triggers, the territorial disputes, particularly the Senkakus, but also the, the, uh, the, the, the goodies in the East China Sea are non-trivial that they're fighting about. So where is it all going? Let me talk to you about, let me return really in a way to the first slide I showed you with, where I connected the dots. These groups still exist. All right? They still exist in Japan. And the way I think about them and the way I do this in the book is to, is to look at the security discourse in Japan across two axes. The horizontal axis is, is you know, distance from the United States Basically, it's distance from the United States. It's very straightforward. It's a proxy for the abandonment entrapment dilemma uh, that's inherent in every alliance. That is, if you get too close to your alliance partner, you risk being drawn into your alliance partner's wars. If you get too far away from your alliance partner, you risk becoming irrelevant to your alliance partner, and so your alliance partner doesn't care about defending you. It's very straightforward. It's not, it's not rocket science, but it's very important because the rhetoric around the alliance, the rhetoric around doing more is all about this. You know, do we hug the United States? Hug them close, right? That's the Tony Blair, that's that book about Tony Blair, hug them close. Or do we put some distance uh, with the United States? After all, the United States goes to war a lot. And we're gonna, we haven't suffered yet. We've actually profited from most of the American wars, uh, but there's gonna come a time when we're not gonna be profiting. We're gonna be suffering. Let's get away from them. The vertical axis is this axis about whether or not you think it's legitimate to use force as a means of settling international disputes. That is, should Article 9 be revised or not? And if you think it shouldn't be revised, and you believe you should be distant from the United States, you're really consistent with the, the pacifists, the unarmed neutralists, and so forth on the left. Um, if you believe that Japan should not use force, but you really believe that you would like to continue the cheap ride for as long as you can, you're with the heirs to the Yoshida Doctrine, the middle power internationalists in the lower right box. But if you believe force is legitimate as a mean, and you believe Japan should start using, at least be allowed to use force, I'm not arguing that these people believe Japan should be aggressive. What I'm arguing is that these people believe Japan should be better armed and more independent. On the left, those are the neo-autonomists, and on the right, continue the alliance with the United States and use that, use that time to buy more capabilities, to buy more experience, to buy more equality uh, along the way. Now, in January of this year, I did a, uh, a survey, actually I interpreted a survey that was done at Tokyo University by Professor Kabashima. He's now the governor of, of, of Kumamoto. He's, he's done well for him for a university professor. Uh, he gave us access, he gave Pat Boyd, uh, Patrick Boyd, a graduate student of mine, and I access to data that he had collected for in a Tokyo University uh, study. I don't know if you can see it. Tokyo University study of a questionnaire was sent to all the members of the lower house of Diet. They are the ones who are still, because the lower house has not been uh, dissolved, they are the ones who are still in the lower house of Diet. Uh, and the, the questionnaire covered a lot of a lot of issues from the culture wars questions to uh, to national security, to how the economy should be organized, and so forth. And we focused on all three, but for the purposes of this lecture, I just want to show you the results against the chart, you know, sort of the, no the notional chart of the discourse. This is how they came out on the issue 
of the national security strategy. And what was really striking about this, uh, there were several things really striking about it. One was that the quote unquote pacifists, oh, by the way, the, 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 the response rate was 425. It's huge, it's something like 85-ish percent, 90%. And the reason is that it, it was administered just before an election, the September 2005 election, the Koizumi sweep. Uh, and so people really needed to have their positions out there. The pacifists did quite well. Not surprisingly, the normal nationalists did the best as a single group, but what's most interesting, oh, and finally, and what's most reassuring, at least to me, is that the neo-autonomists, these guys who want nuclear weapons, who want to be completely independent of the United States and so forth, the heirs to the Japanese nativists of the pre-war, there are only four guys who, who sort of position themselves through their answers to the questions in this box. Um, so that was fine, and that was interesting and enlightening, but what was most interesting to me was that the cumulative majority, as you can see, the cumulative majority are on one line or another, which by my interpretation means that events uh, can shift them. Uh, they're not sure. They're a bit ambivalent, and I think that you sort of have to watch this space. We don't know which way it'll go. So let me talk about each, each one of those those actually all but the, the pacifists. Let me talk about three of these boxes and what their national security strategy would be and then tell you what I th why I think none of them will come to be and tell you what I think will come to be and then get out of your way. Uh, a normal Japan. This is, this is the normal nationalists. I've already talked to you about what they've accomplished. The answer is if they stay in power much longer they will do this and more. This plus alpha. Um, it's basically a Japan that won't say no to the United States. They want, but they want a fuller partnership, more equality with the United States. They want to be normal like the Brits are normal. This is very important. They want British-style normality, which would mean you hug the Americans. This is Tony Blair version of British-style normality, sorry. Um, hug them close and fight their wars with them. Um, the problem with this view is that this would alienate Japan from their, their, their regional uh, partners, from their, their neighbors, certainly, and uh, from a large number of domestic constituents. I don't think they're going to go there. Armed neutrality, um, this upper left-hand quadrant where they are using force and getting away from the Americans, they would have nukes. They've said so. It's a good idea in their view. Um, they would move from, I think, defensive to offensive realism, that is, uh, take advantage of opportunities in the international order. It would be a Japan that not only can say no, but does say no. Now, I've already, as I've already showed you, they don't get much traction. Um, support for this at home is quite marginal, and of course in the region and among the Americans is non-existent. I don't think it's going to happen in that form. Then there's the return to the Yoshida version of the world, a Japan that will not quite say yes. It says yes on you know, the free ride, but won't say yes when the Americans say, fight with us, they'll say, we'll send you trucks for the rear area. How would you like these clock radios? In fact, Don Atwood, who was the Undersecretary of Defense during the first Gulf War, um, actually was told that by the Japanese when he said, what are you prepared to do? He said, we're, we're, we're prepared to, to send walkmen. So your sol soldiers, when they come back from the front, can have a, an, an entertaining time. And at that point, Atwood said, it's going to cost you $13 billion. That's when the number went from $4 billion to 13. He was not a happy Undersecretary of Defense. Um, it's a Japan that would be tethered uh, to the Constitution and to its evolved norms, as I've described them. That is the, the cheap riding norms. It would be rolled back from regional, from global security to regional security, probably back to defensive defense. 
and a very comfortable junior partnership with the United States. I, the Japanese are not, they don't support this now. This is not where Japan is, where the public is. And it is, at the end of the day, a very robust democracy in Japan. Something I guess I have to say out loud. Um, I shouldn't have to. So what do I think will happen? What I think will happen was, is what I call the Goldilocks posture. Um, not too hard, not too soft, not too far, not too close. This is, uh, I have to explain Goldilocks. I, I thought everyone read Goldilocks. I was in Germany. I thought it was a German fairy tale, and Germans looked at me with completely, but with blanker faces than the Japanese looked at me when I said it. Okay, so it's, 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 it's a sort of, you know, mini-max kind of. Okay. Um, it's a Japan that, that will be able to say no, and that sometimes will say no in the same way that some of America's most reliable allies have said, the Canadians said no uh, uh, to, to Iraq. The, the Germans uh, will say no from time to time, certainly. The French have long learned how to say no to the Americans. That's not a surprise. And yet we cooperate quite easily with the French in, in, other, in other ways. Um, it's a Japan that would be armed for deterrence, uh, not, an ar not armed for aggression, armed to counter coercion, particularly in the South China Sea. That's what the Coast Guard buildup, it seems to me, is about. And why do I think all of this is happening? Is because I do believe that Jap Japanese leadership is highly uh, pragmatic, uh, not necessarily in the Yoshida sense but very strategic. There are divisions within each of those quadrants I showed you. It was a very coarse-grained analysis. There are divisions within each. That's what, I guess, people, all those folks being on the lines were about. Japan, because they're acting strategically, they're hedging like mad. And they're hedging against the decline of the United States, which is out there for all to see, uh, both relative and absolute. Uh, they're, they're, they're hedging against the entanglement abandonment uh, dilemma. Uh, they're, 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 again, a robust democratic politics. Their intra-party dynamics suggest uh, that they're headed in this way. Um, and they may even, you know, God forbid, in this robust democracy, have an alternation in power. Um, that's more Godot-like than it is Goldilocks-like. But, you know, we've been waiting a long time. I've lost a lot of money voting against the LDP in the uh, office election pools. But here we are. But I'll tell you what. I wrote this book, the preface to the edition that's on sale tonight, for a mere eight pounds. The, the preface talks about how Abe was a Goldilocks right out of the gate. And I say in the preface, and I'll say to you here, I was surprised. Gold, you know, Abe was, uh, is Kishi's grandson. Mr. Abe was openly very uh, vigorous in his support for a more muscular Japanese foreign policy. Mr. Abe was a strong advocate of, of, of punitive diplomacy with the North Koreans on the abductees issue. There's a whole range of ways in which, a range of features of his, his point of view uh, that led folks to, to, to label him a nationalist. He was going to take Japan down the Koizumi, further down the Koizumi path. And the Koizumi path included sticking along sharp a poker in the eye of the Chinese and the Koreans by going to Yasukuni Shrine and doing other things that were uh, not cool. So um, instead, and to everyone's surprise really, certainly to the surprise of Japan experts um, and to others, he went, instead of going to the United States first, which is uh, something that virtually every Japanese prime minister in the past had done, he went to China first. He went then to Korea. Maybe it was the reverse order. No, I think he went to China first. He, he announced that he would reform um, the Yushukan Museum, the exhibits in the Yushukan. I don't know how many of you have been to the Yushukan Museum, which is on the grounds. Uh, a fair number. 
uh, uh, some, anyway. The Yushikan Museum um, is, uh, is a reliquary of uh, war, uh, it's war relics on display, and, and, a, and a celebration of Japanese militarism. Uh, and it, if you if you are uh, uh, the, the descendant of uh, a former adversary of the imperial military, uh, it's a very disturbing place to visit. And um, he listened really to the protests of some, particularly on the American side. Said, "Look, you know, would you please fix this place?" Their account of the Nanjing massacre, their account of the reasons for uh, World War II, their accounts of many things are really quite uh, well, quite at odds with, uh, I think, good sense. And history, but there it is. He argued for that change. He accepted, and this was really quite striking, he accepted the Murayama Apology of 1995. He was the leader of the group of diet representatives in 1995 who walked out of diet, who wouldn't listen to the idea that a full dress apology uh, on the 50th anniversary of the end of the war to Japan's neighbors was something the Japanese government should do. He opposed it became prime minister and supported it and went further and argued and acknowledged that his grandfather was partly responsible for the Second World War. So this was a guy who was acting like Goldilocks. This was not a guy who was acting um, like, uh, well, Koizumi, his predecessor. He, he um, supported the, the appointment of a joint history commission with the Chinese, uh, new negotiations for the resources in the East China Sea and so forth. So he was really toning it down. So he was Goldilocks right out of the gate, to everyone's surprise. And then there were the Goldilocks twins. Uh, Mr. Ozawa, uh, again, uh, after being elected, after his party uh, won uh, a majority, or a near majority, in the uh, upper house of the Diet, um, moved uh, first and foremost to pull Japan away from the United States and forced a suspension in the Japanese cooperation in Operation Enduring Freedom and the Afghanistan dispatch, temporary, though it was. Um, Ozawa and Fukuda, who was Abe's successor, pushed Tokyo closer to Beijing through visits, port calls, military, uh, the promise of certain, well, port calls, not that's not military cooperation, but it's non-trivial that a Chinese missile cruiser shows up in Yokosuka and in, 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 in the naval bases, uh, and, and that Japanese military ships show up in Chinese military ports without mass demonstrations. And then the question is, what about Aso? Uh, I'm not going to go through all of this except to say that, 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 that Mr. Aso seems to be following an Abe line rather than a Koizumi line, and that the distinctions, the differences between Aso and Ozawa, and that's the difference that we have to sort out because we're going to have a dissolution of diet shortly, and Ozawa may be the prime, Mr. Aso may be a very short-term prime minister, we don't know. We do know that the LDP is going to fall very hard, we just don't know whether it will fall from power. Um, there are differences on a number of issues. The alliance issue, which for Aso is the number one priority, all the way to the right on that chart I showed you. Mr. Ozawa says, yes, you know, the Americans, we, you know, the alliance, yes, important, but it's really the United Nations under which, the auspices of the United Nations under which we should organize our, our security uh, posture. Um, the, on the refueling issue, they are starkly in opposition, one from the other. On North Korea, Mr. Aso is, uh, uh, I, I guess, as all Japanese leaders uh, must be, uh, at the beck and call of the America. I mean, the, these, the, the effort to make the abductee issue disconnect the six-party talks failed and failed miserably. Unconstitutional revision, although Mr. Ozawa in the past has argued for it, uh, he hasn't spoken much about it. Recently, Mr. Aso is all for it, but probably unable to make it happen. So stay tuned, and I'd be happy to answer questions, and thank you for your attention.
I guess, John, I'll, okay, I'm, I'm happy to, I'll, you know, if you want, I'll take a, a couple and, um, and, and so let me excuse myself for a moment, get a piece of paper, and otherwise I'm hopeless. Maybe I'm hopeless. There we are. So please, anyone? Yes, sir. Uh, do you think that it's likely that the fire will be go through now, now that Osawa uh, seems to have I'm sorry, that what will go through? Sorry, the uh, Marine Maritime Interdiction. Oh, Maritime Interdiction, yeah. yeah will it go through now that Ozawa seems to be tactically accepting in order to get the general election? You're talking about Operation Endur participation in Operation Enduring Freedom? Well, that's not maritime interdiction. That's why I'm confused. Maritime interdiction is something, that's the PSI. That's the Proliferation Security Initiative. What they're arguing about is whether or not Japan should continue to send its tankers with, with fuel for the, the warships and warplanes of the coalition forces fighting in Afghanistan. That means going out to Diego Garcia. So there's no interdiction involved in that. Um, do I think it'll go through? Yeah, I do. I think it will go through. Uh, but that's, you know, based on a reading of yesterday's newspaper, and tomorrow it may say something else. He's not a big fan of it. Mr. Ozawa is, if anything, very clever in, in selecting issues on which to fight, and if he thinks that's not, I mean, that was an issue to fight in the summer of 2007, and he fought it quite successfully. Um, the problem for Mr. Ozawa is, is not a strategic one except within the context of his party. There are those within his party, Maihara in particular, who are very eager to see this thing happen. And it could split the party. In fact, as we look, as we look out over the possibilities uh, for this next election and, and the consequences of this next election, we may end up seeing the, the splitting both of the LDP and of the DPJ into sort of new formations. Um, you know, there's, some, there's been speculation about that. This would be one issue on which it could come apart. The DPJ, Mr. Ozawa's party, I think, the, I think I'm guessing, but I think the majority of the members of the DPJ are not happy with his position on using the UN as uh, the arbiter of what is legal and illegal in Japanese security policy. We're, we're going to see this. We're going to see it play out. Yes, sir? Yeah, yes. Uh, and the reasons for the Japanese uh, opposition to the removal of North Korea from the list of priorities, is it because it comes before the, in an, any further concession concerning the abductees from Japan or the water issue? Yeah, this is, you know, I come from, the, uh, from Cambridge, Massachusetts, the other Cambridge. And um, it's the 8th Congressional District. Well, you know, you, you spent a lot of time there. And the 8th Congressional District um, was Tip O'Neill's district. And Tip O'Neill was a very famous American pop populist and popular um, uh, politician in Boston. And he had a very famous statement saying, which was all politics is local, right? And the case of the abductees is exactly that. The, the people familiar, is, is, are there folks, a, a quick primer on the abductees? Yes? Does everyone know who the abductees are? Yep. Is there anyone who doesn't? Okay, well then, then that's fine. Everyone knows the abductees. I'm shocked. All right. Um, the abductees is a domestic political issue in Japan. Um, Civil society, to the extent civil society is active in Japan on this issue, it's been captured by the right. Um, it's been captured by a group, the, one group has been captured called the Kazukukai, the Families Association. The other is the Skukai, the Family, the, the Abductee Rescue Association. The number of these groups, um, when I say captured, it means simply that 
these groups um, have been championed their cause, which is the return of the kidnapped from North Korea to Japan, or their remains, um, has been championed by the most the revisionists within the LDP, the most conservative part of the LDP, that's Mr. Abe in particular, who engineered a huge electoral victory in November of 2003 for the LDP at a time when Mr. Koizumi was wobbly on his pins. He used the abductee issue, he got it done. So, Abductees is a very important, it's a heartfelt, a heart-rending, horrible story of families being divided and so forth. The Americans are aware of it. The Americans are sympathetic to it. I think the Chinese are sympathetic to it. The problem, and it's a, it's a profound problem, is that in the world of international politics, the fate of 20 or 30 young, and somewhere as young as 13, who were, who were abducted, um, the fate of their, fa their, their fate and the fate of the families pales in comparison to the problem of the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction. So the Americans are trying to do, actually with the Chinese, is to make sure that WMD gets taken care of and then they'll worry, they told that they're paying lip service to the Japanese. The Japanese are not happy with that because they are playing to a domestic constituency. This is why the politics is local. Playing to a domestic constituency that they have to, they have to, they have to win the, the hearts and minds up to get reelected. There's an election coming up, so the real battle is not between. Um, uh, well, the real battle is, is is making sure that they look like the champions of the abductees, so and, and they're not being and they're, 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 that their issue is not being sold down some American river, and um, uh, that's why you saw an announcement yesterday when the when the, the, uh, the North Koreans agreed to allow re-inspections again, the first person to get up and protest it and issue a sort of a statement of concerns, say, was the, was, uh, the Japanese, uh, Japanese minister, Nakagawa Shoichi. He got up and he said, look, this is a real problem where you know, we really are concerned about this. We're, it's about domestic politics. And we'll see how it, we'll see how it goes. Yes, sir? I read one of your pieces, uh, Richard, uh, recently, joined the author about hedging, Japan, Japan's hedging. Oh, yes, right. And I just wondered if your talk wasn't doing the same thing a little bit. Uh, and I don't mean that, by the way, in any insulting sense, but... Um, I got thick skin. In the end, I, I, I'm not sure where you come down. So I, was, I, was, I read your work and uh, by your book this evening, so I... But I'm still not sure where you come down, really. I mean, is the fundamental consensus here comes under the notion of the Yoshida Doctrine, has that fundamentally been abandoned? Are we in a qualitatively new era? Have we moved beyond that? And it seems to me, uh, and you know, I've read the debates around the book, which Chris Hughes and others participated in, it seems to me that the fundamentals of that bargain between the United States and Japan, domestic consensus and all the rest of it, that fun the fundamentals of that remain, that Japan will buy into a US-led security Pacific order, it, although the Chinese don't seem to understand it, um, they will buy into this because it's the best deal they've got. There is talk, of course, in Japan of American decline, but they're hedging on that because they're not sure, because nobody is sure. Um, and of course, um, there is the whole question of China, but even, even the question of rising China itself may reinforce the doctrine, not undermine it. So I thought you were hedging a bit at the end. I mean, I, I, I see the accumulation of material. Uh, and you know, obviously yeah. these are facts on the ground. But the question is, 
does this accumulation of the material you presented in the last two thirds of the really add up to, in the end, a great fundamental challenge to the fundamentals of that bargain struck in the 1950s? And I'm still not convinced that it is. No, you've. you've as, you, as a non specialist, by the no, way. No, 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 no. Talking well, from outside of this. As a non specialist, really you. I, it doesn't seem to me the basics of that deal, of that bargain, whatever you want to call it, are really being challenged, either within Japan or. There's a little bit of. The Americans have allowed a little bit of, you know, movement. There's a little bit of movement within this debate going on. I agree with that. But I'm not sure that it really adds up in the end to something which is going to challenge. No, it's a it's a very it's a very good question, and if you've read the debates on the book, particularly with Chris, uh, then you understand where we really where we disagree. And what we disagree on this on this issue is on the question of whether or not the Japanese are creating options for themselves, which is what I believe they're doing. I believe, well, or whether or not I'll, I'll come back to that, or whether or not um, the Japanese are insinuating themselves through all of these changes, insinuating themselves so deeply into an American grand strategy that they are reducing their degrees of freedom and making it impossible for them to have. I believe the former. Chris believes the latter. Um, I think, uh, and, and it sort of it does come down to this. Now, let's go back to the, the issue of the Yoshida. The Yoshida doctrine, um, parts of it have been, that's why it sounds like a hedge, parts of it have been deeply embraced in Japan. Um, the fact that Article 9, you know, they crept up to trying to make a change and failed, um, that there wasn't, there isn't popular support for a revision of Article 9, that they've had trouble even putting a bill through to change the interpretation, that, um, that even um, the revisionists have embraced certain restrictions uh, on uh, national power, some of them. Um, uh, suggests that the Yoshida doctrine is still there and, and to be to be to be uh, acknowledged, to be dealt with, to be oh, sorry. the on the other hand, so many parts of the Yoshida doctrine are no more. Uh, it's sort of like the old Monty Python routine with the parrot is dead. You know, it it's it really quite dead. Quite I can't even do the Monty I wouldn't try to do Monty Python in London. Anyway, it's it's so much has changed. The Japanese have created for themselves, in my view, so many degrees of freedom, not the least of which is um, uh, uh, through entirely new institutional forms like <coughs> these, these Coast Guard capabilities. I mean, this Coast Guard has gone down to the Malacca Straits. It's, best I can tell, last time I looked at a map, nowhere near the Japanese coast. Uh, nor is New Delhi anywhere near the Japanese coast, but the Coast Guard folks have been talking with the Indians, you know. I mean, this is. They're, they're playing with new forms of security cooperation on a new scale that was not only um, unimaginable, but certainly illegal um, under earlier interpretations. So I think there's been a lot of change. Um, it comes down at the end of the day to the, not just the commitment of the United States, but to the conviction that the Japanese have, the level of conviction the Japanese have that the United States is, in fact, a committed ally of the Japanese, and there are going to be many who say that the United States may want it, even if the United States may want to help them. They won't. They can't. They, the Gaullists will have their day, and I think the Gaullists' arsenal, uh, not, not to put too fine a point on it, their gun belt, their quiver, let's, let's use quiver, uh, is fuller today than it has ever been, and therefore I think um, there were more possibilities than existed under the Yoshida Doctrine in its pure form despite the fact that, as you, as you acknowledge, 
some of the changes have been on the margins of the issue to time. I think there's lots of opportunity for those who would like to do more. That didn't exist. Yeah. Two questions. One is about Taiwan and the, uh, what is the state of uh, consensus, implicit perhaps, in Japan about the defense of Taiwan? And secondly, the Arctic. China is um, uh, building a long-term strategy for um, uh, sending ships through the Arctic as the ice melts. And as just one example, is building very close relations with Iceland of all places because um, Chinese giant uh, container ships have to be transshipped to get into uh, Western European and North American ports. And Iceland is a, a very good place to build a mega transshipment port. And so, and the Chinese are playing this in a long game. I'm wondering what the Japanese are doing about the Arctic. That's, uh, one, thank you, Robert. One, Robert and I were former colleagues at MIT. It's good to see him again. Thank you. Those two excellent questions, um, uh, and you'll see why I think so in just a moment. But take, let me take them in turn. First is uh, the Taiwan case. Um, the Japanese have committed nothing that we know of to the defense of Taiwan. The Americans, of course, have. But the Americans have, in the context of an unprovoked attack on Taiwan, so you know we would... Uh, we would be sailing from Japanese ports, uh, the U.S. Navy, I should say. The U.S. Navy would be sailing from Japanese, Japanese ports. Uh, the U.S. Air Force would be operating out of Japanese air, airfields and so forth. What the Americans expect is very little from the Japanese. In fact, what the Americans expect is nothing in a military sense from the Japanese, as I understand it. Indeed, I think Japan had been, uh, has been planned out of most... Uh, contingencies in that area. What the Americans want is one thing and only one thing, which is that the rear area of ba those bases back in Japan would continue to operate and not be shut down by protests uh, and anti-war you know, anti movements and that, that sort of thing. The Americans want to make sure that the Japanese will do at least that much. And if, if there's anything else in there, and I've not been in government, and I don't know the documents, uh, I haven't been told what they say, certainly, my guess is they probably have some agreements on, on um, uh, fuel and, and, and supplies, but it's very rare area. So I don't think the Japanese have committed to much. Um, on the Arctic, I just come back, and this is why I'm smiling, I've just come back from a conference in Halifax, Nova Scotia, and uh, that was at the invitation of the Canadian Coast Guard. Um, it was an, a wonderful meeting, uh, in part because I had a, a chance to see exactly what you described, which is the sense that the the, um, the Canadians have about what the security consequences are of the melting of the polar ice cap and the, particularly the opening of the Northwest Passage. Now there was an article in the May issue of Foreign Affairs by a, a fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations whose name Scott, uh, Scott, it was Scott something, I, I apologize, but you should have a look if you haven't seen it. And it's, it's very stunning. What he, what, he, what he demonstrates is to take the Asian example, um, is if that Northwest Passage is open to commercial transport, the route from Yokohama to Rotterdam is reduced from 12,000 nautical miles to 6,000 nautical miles, cut roughly in half. This hasn't escaped the Japanese notice, it hasn't escaped the Chinese notice, it hasn't escaped anyone's notice. 
Most of all, it hasn't escaped the notice of the Canadian Coast Guard, which is non-militarized and very concerned about how to strike a balance with its, the Canadian Navy and how to find, so they, I was there because I had just written this piece on the Japan Coast Guard. Then, so I was the, they had asked the Japanese Coast Guard to come, Japan Coast Guard said no. So I was the Japan Coast Guard guy. But there was a Norwegian Coast Guard guy, and a Danish Coast Guard guy, and a, you know, there were Russians there, the American Coast Guard was there. And everyone was talking about exactly this issue. And it's not just the militarization of the Northwest Passage, but it's also the things Coast Guards do, which is, you know, uh, search and rescue. Uh, God forbid a, you know, a, a, a cruise ship goes down with thousands of, it's a small city. You know, they've got to be able to get out there and save lives and so forth. They're talking about how to, how to manage and, and so forth. They're very aware of it. The Japanese have used the, the buildup of the Coast Guard not for this purpose and don't talk about China. I'm trying to think now for a moment, Robert. I don't think, I, re I, I don't recall whether or not there's a chapter or a section on China in the Coast Guard white paper. There certainly is on North Korea. Uh, there certainly is on the Arctic. There certainly is on aid to Southeast Asia. Uh, and there is on interdiction and so forth through the, the but, but China is again sort of not, not part of this. On the other hand, without regard to whether it's in the document or not, it's certainly on the front of people's foreheads. This is, there's gonna be competition for, for these kinds of commercial routes. And, and be the, the ability to maintain uh, freedom from coercion on these routes as well. Now the Americans, uh, you know, God bless us, we never signed the international law of the sea, and so we're sort of the odd man out. Everyone else is up there trying to figure it out through an international accord. We have, the, you know, you have the script, you have the document, and the Americans can't play. It's difficult, but anyway. Yes, sir. The Uh, yes and no. Can, can you just repeat? Oh, yes. Have there been any significant policy discord? Has there been significant poli policy discord between the United States and Japan over a risen China? And the answer is, is yes and no. Uh, and I'm not trying to be cute, so let me try to unbundle the answer. Um, uh, on the no part, uh, I'm referring to the alliance managers themselves, most of whom want to see a more muscular Japan. So the rise of China has, if anything, helped the alliance because it's enabled the alliance managers to make successful uh, pleas to, 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 for, this, for the pleas of the alliance managers uh, and, and particularly the revisionists in Japan to make successful arguments for new kinds of deployments, new kinds of cooperations, remote island defense. Remote island defense is all about China's rise. It's about going out and, and defending, patrolling and defending uh, the Senkakus in particular, uh, and the, the uh, resource basin in the East China Sea. So um, in that regard, no, it hasn't created problems. It's actually, it's actually driven the Americans and the Japanese into each other's arms more tightly. On the other hand, there, are, there, were a lot of, uh, uh, there was a lot of concern in Washington in 2005-ish um, when Mr. Koizumi went that extra, you know, crossed that extra bridge um, by continuing, as I, as I said before, you know, sticking a, 
a sharp poker in the, in the Chinese eyes by going to the Yasuni Shrine. That began to wear out the goodwill of many American alliances because, because contrary to what I think many believe, which is that bad relations between Japan and China is in U.S. interest, I think the Americans, many Americans, in the Bush, even in the Bush administration at that time were concerned that it had gotten to, gone out of hand. Because you began then, remember 2004, 2005, there were demonstrations, anti-Japanese demonstrations in China. There was a, a pelting of the, you know, they overturned the Consul General's car. There was a riot in the Asian uh, football matches um, and so forth, anti-Japanese riots in China. Um, and the Chinese-Japanese relationship got very, very cold. And the Americans, I think, many Americans, uh, not maybe in the Defense Department, but certainly in the State Department, were not happy. Uh, and there was, there was friction there. And it's possible that that force majeure that I showed you that said that Mr. Armitage was forcing the Japanese to do more, it may have been the Americans were squeezing the Japanese to do less and to try to just make it up, get it right with the Chinese. For God's sakes, they're your major trading partner. We're not. You know, Japanese China is the major trading, tra trading dyad out in the world, really. And in the world, anyway, in, in East Asia. Um, so the, the um, I think it's a mixed picture. That's why the yes and the no. Oh, can I go to someone else just because? Okay, yeah. I'm, I'm sorry to. Yes, sir. I'll, let me come back to you at the end. Yes, sir. Yeah, what's the nature of uh, Japan's relationship with Russia and how is the changing status of Russian foreign policy affecting uh, Japan? Yeah, that's, a, that's another good question. That's the one about which I know least. Uh, uh, Russia plays a very small part in the book. Uh, and I think if I were writing the book over again, I'd be doing much more. I'd, be, I'd learn much more and then be able to say much more. Um, I was able to say so little in part because Russia was so, uh, of so little importance in the course of this period, with the exception of the early run-up in the Japanese defense budget in the 1980s, when, uh, in the early 1990s. There was a time when, uh, you know, this move <coughs> at the end of the Cold War of forces to the, to the Russian Far East uh, was used by Japanese defense managers to bulk up the Japanese defense budget and the Japanese defense budget was, was the fastest growing part of the Japanese national budget uh, with the exception of back and forth with aid you know, during, the, during this period. Uh, and that was the Russians who were, who were scaring, scaring the Japanese into this quote unquote. Then Russia went away. Uh, in, the, in the security planning, for the most part, and I, I mean this again in sort of a, a gross sense, it went away, but it's back. And it's back um, in part because the, the Russians have proclaimed that they're back. They've demonstrated that they're back in the North Atlantic, that they're even in the Mediterranean again, and uh, in the Far East will return. Uh, that new intercontinental ballistic missiles are being, uh, are being uh, on, are on, the, on the drawing boards and so forth. And so I think that the answer to your question, if I knew more, would be very different today, uh, or should be very different today than it was when I was doing the research and writing for this book even two years ago, and a year and a half ago. Uh, if there's someone here who knows more about the Russian case, I'd, I'd love to, maybe you do, do you, do you have a sense? Yes, sir. Can I just ask, Gary, on the basis of sort of hypothetically speaking, but uh, on the basis of your last graph chart, uh, if we do see ASSO returning after the election and not too devastating, but weakened slightly, do you, do you think we'll do you think you'll have a greater mandate to have enough of a mandate to return to Afghanistan in support of the Americans? Uh, 
permanent peacekeeping law. Peacekeeping operations law is permanent. That was from 1993. Um, and along the way, the Japanese have interpreted their law to allow for participation in peacekeeping forces. So it's in place. The question is, where do the peacekeeping forces get deployed? And what are they allowed to do? When I was discussing this with a former vice minister in, in the defense agency, uh, he said that, that the Sudan was the first place they thought of. Um, had there been a, you know, a, a UN peacekeeping force and so forth. They were, they were prepared, they were talking about doing that, and then they decided it simply couldn't be sold to the Japanese people. It wasn't in Japan's national interest, and they backed away from it. Since then, we've had a couple of times when the peacekeeping PKF, not PKO, PKF, has been debated inside these cor those corridors. And um, my guess is we'll see that. And I think we'll, we'll see that before uh, we see anything, certainly from Mr. Ozawa, because he's all for this sort of thing. He's absolutely all for this sort of thing. And I don't, I don't think there's a big distinction with Mr. Oslo now on this, on this point. Uh, on the first point, uh, on whether or not, um, uh, it wasn't, you weren't asking if Mr. Oslo would win, but whether or not we'd see a permanent so deployment to Afghanistan. No, I mean, I think the last time he, he needed, Mr. Fukuda needed to invoke the two-thirds veto of the upper house. I mean, it's a reverse veto. But he needed to invoke the special powers given to the lower house that exist only when you have two-thirds majority. He won't have anything near the two-thirds majority, as you've acknowledged. So. Um, I don't think I don't think you'll see that. Um, what you may see, um, uh, well, I don't think you'll see it. In fact, what we saw as recently as about two months ago, three months ago, was a discussion as Japan is extricating itself from Iraq. Uh, everyone knows that the soldiers with their boots on the ground left Iraq, it left Samoa, but they left behind. Uh, a couple of three C-130 transports, and they were sh they were ferrying materiel between Baghdad and Kuwait City, and you know thank thank goodness it, none ever went down. They didn't fall victim to hostile fire and so forth. So this commitment hasn't been tested, and no one's died on the Japanese side. All good things, but um, that's the last piece to come out of Iraq. The discussion was as that as we extricate we Japanese ex extricate from. Uh, Iraq, oughtn't we be talking about participating in a multinational force under UN auspices in Afghanistan? And that was abandoned when Mr. Fukuda's support really went below uh, anything remotely, um, any, a level remotely uh, affording him the power to get things done. So, last question. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's 8 o'clock. So, last question. I apologize yeah, for making you I wait. Think some paradoxical aspect of the rise, economic rise of China. That is, an economic front, China and Japan relations have become closer. And in fact, China is already, has been for some years, the largest trading partner in Japan. Also, the relationship between China, Japan, and Korea is a very special kind. That is, China's function as the launching pad for many of the intermediate and capital goods made in Japan and Korea. But the political aspect is that as China grows more important economically, Japanese are more and more terrified of China. 
they want to move closer to the United States. So in some sense, there is a tension between these closer, ever closer economic relations and how to react to it politically. Right. No, I, that's exactly right. The, the um, one solution to that, um, the way it was described to me, and it's actually kind of a, of a compelling explanation, was this issue of the uh, Asian Economic Caucus, or uh, East Asian Economic Caucus, um, a sort of an EU, or an EC anyway, in, in the region. And the way it was presented to me was, well, look, you know, to the Americans, Americans were none too happy about it because it excluded the United States. And uh, the way the Japanese, uh, a very thoughtful Japanese, presented it to me was, look, you know, you've lived with this division in Europe for years. You're in NATO, and you're out of the EU, and you know you stop whining about. Well, you still whine, but you don't. It, you haven't tried to, to undo these things, and um, and 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 get used to the idea because that's the future of Asia. The way they square that circle is to say, well, on the economic front, we're going to have ever increasing interdependence and cooperation. On the military side, we hedge our bets and we continue to play with the Americans, and we build this arc of freedom and democracy that stretches down through Australia and across to India, you know, that's the, that's the model. The Indians will have nothing of it, you know, uh, to their credit. But, you know, it, it's, a, it's a very thinly veiled uh, uh, containment strategy toward China. They, taking it, having it both ways, and wanting to have it both ways in, in, in you know, installed in, in, in institutional form um, is something that I think many, I think, what we call middle middle power internationalists in Japan would like to see, hang you know it's, it's you know in the United States in the 1930s they were all end with this but there was this we had these these carnival shows in the Midwest in in, in Kansas and I you have these state fairs and airplanes dual winged probably have them here in in Britain as well you had these bi winged planes and they had guys walking on the wings and doing acrobatics while the planes were flying right so you have these these biplanes and and the first rule. The very first rule about doing wing walking, it's called, is you never let go with one hand unless you're sure you have the other hand, you know, right? And that's that's the way I see this. It's not quite a hydraulic relationship. It's more like a wing walking thing, where you're you're making sure that you you know you've got that. Okay, then we'll take that. Okay, then we get that one. And they want to they're going to want to have it both ways. And that's part of the Goldilocks model. Anyway, thank you all very much.